Resonant Zones is a podcast about echoes and pulsations between people, ideas, and artifacts, hosted by Adam Wetterhunt. For more information about Adam's work, teaching, and philosophy, visit Adam's blog, asatkora.com, spelled A-S-A-T-K-H-O-R-A.com. Welcome to Resonant Zones. Upgrade your hobbies into a well-paying side gig. How to monetize your dreams by working full-time and having three side hustles. Sleep less, work smarter and harder. Time is money, so buckle in for... 90 minutes of discussion about the psychology of burnout and capitalism. My name is Adam Wetterhahn, and my guest for this episode is Dr. Alice Chi, a trilingual clinical psychologist who currently specializes in young adult mental health, focusing on the treatment of mood disorders, eating disorders, and trauma in the context of academic, familial, and socio-political stressors. Alice is particularly interested in the intersection between family, culture, and food, applying a psychodynamic lens in working with international students, first-generation college students, and students of color. She also happens to be my wife, and I'm so pleased to have her on the show today to discuss burnout, a syndrome you won't find anywhere in the DSM-5. We've been planning this episode for a few months now, after a friend recommended I read Byung-Chul Han's extremely short but very dense essay, The Burnout Society. The conversations Alice and I had then sparked, pun intended, the idea for this episode. Byung-Chul Han, a Korean-born German philosopher, demonstrates that the output of a capitalist achievement society is a burnt-out society. Instead of worrying solely about being exploited by others, we also now must contend with how we have been taught, no, indoctrinated, to exploit ourselves. Byung-Chul Han sees burnout not only as something experienced by individuals, but as a result of our society itself overwhelming us with information, desire, images, and demands for more. Dr. Chi and I discuss what burnout looks like personally, how it intertwines with depression and anxiety, what individuals experiencing burnout can do, if the self-care revolution is really about what it says it's about, and we also raise the difficult question of how to avoid burnout in a society that seems designed to use you up. It's my sincere hope that this episode is timely and comes to your ears in the midst of this global pandemic and the various uprisings around the United States and is supportive of a culture of actively listening to yourself during great societal upheaval. Interested readers can find Byung-Chul Han's book, The Burnout Society, published by Stanford University Press, and Alice also offers a selected reading at the end of the episode from David White's Consolations, The Solace, Nourishment, and Underlying Meaning of 
everyday words. A book which came highly recommended to me and which I highly recommend to you. And now, on with the show. Enjoy the conversation. I'm really excited to have my wife Alice on the podcast today. We are literally sitting in separate rooms of our apartment with the door closed, headphones on, and microphones in our face uh, because I'm obsessed with getting this podcast to sound studio quality. Alice is a practicing clinical psychologist at a large university here in the United States. And she's coming on the episode today to talk about burnout. So let's just start off. Can you say a little word about what you do, what you're interested in, um, what your background is with psychology? Sure. I guess I'll start with that. I've always been a curious person. If I can quote my mom, uh, I think her words were, why are you asking so many questions? Stop it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And lo and behold, uh, I went into a profession of asking people questions. So uh, there's there's something kind of quaint to that. Um, So I think being curious about people's lives, uh, being curious about the stories they hold, the narratives they have, and then being able to be in a, a position of privilege of being able to witness and hear and listen um, to their stories and narratives is something that I'm deeply passionate about. And that's, I mean, uh, kind of a poetic way poetic way of um, perhaps describing what I do uh, but the but the the task oriented way uh, on a day-to-day consists of providing individual therapy and before the pandemic um, kind of more in-person other types of services including group therapy consultation presentations, uh, things like that uh, to at at a university setting. And can you specify just a little bit more about the population you work with um, on a day to day basis? Sure. Uh, on a day to day basis, the the people in which I serve are uh, university setting students, ranging from undergraduate students to graduate students, including professional graduate students and more traditional kind of master's and doctorate level students. Uh, So the age range of that is typically 17 to um, your average age, more traditional 
college student age of 21, 22, 23. Uh, but then for graduate students, it, it kind of has a, a, a bigger kind of gap. Um, and there are some non-traditional students that they're at the graduate level or the undergrad level. Um, and so I've had the 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 privilege of serving kind of uh, within from 17 to let's just say um, mid late 30s. What would you say are some of the biggest presenting concerns um, that walk through your door or uh, during this time of pandemic that uh, schedule a t- uh, telehealth um, consultation with you? What, what are the main presenting concerns that students within that age range that you defined um, seem to be bringing to you? Yeah, I would say across the nation, probably if you ask that question to any uh, mental health clinician works at within colleges or university settings, that the top two would be anxiety and depression. Um and when I say anxiety and depression, not necessarily diagnosable disorders or syndromes, uh, but rather that, that that's manifestations of some sort of anxiety presentation or depressive presentation. Uh, mm. Those are the two most common presentations, which mm-hmm. hopefully we can get into a little bit about of why that is, um, and, it, and, mm-hmm. it, and it, it'll make much more sense. And Mm -hmm. the other things are, I would say, trauma, substance misuse or abuse, eating disorder, body image concerns. Uh, And then Mm -hmm. also Mm -hmm. uh, there are the occasional first psychosis or first uh, manic or hypomanic episodes. And although those are much more... Uh, rare in terms of presentation compared Mm. to the other four that I mentioned previously. And sticking to anxiety and depression for a moment, just for for a lay person, do you have a simple way of describing the difference between those two? I mean, I have sort of a average everyday conventional understanding of the difference, but is there a a meaningful way to draw a line in the sand between those, those two types of symptoms? Yeah, the way that I tend to conceptualize the two for my students is that they're kind of distant relatives and um, they're not so distant where they're not related. So they're still somewhat related. And the relationship between the two is that I imagine anxiety as um, kind of too much energy in the body where if you imagine a wavelength it's it's kind of above the baseline and then you're climbing 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 and uh, it's kind of the body kind of withholding too much of the heightened state it's similar to the analogy of like trying to run a marathon at sprint speed and i mean for me, as non non runner, <laughs> I'd probably mm-hmm. uh, burn out in in the first I don't know like half mile, not even if mm-hmm. I were to to sprint. And so, in some mm-hmm. way, the relationship then between anxiety and depression is that when you put your body in such heightened state of arousal, at some point your body exhausts itself, and 
boom, it's like you hit a threshold and then the depressive stage comes. You have no more energy. And that's kind of how I understand the depressive or the depression uh, manifestation of lethargy, of not having energy, no motivation. Uh, it's, it's like the opposite of restlessness. There's a lot of kind of slowing down. And so sometimes people, you know, don't even realize um, that oftentimes what precedes before they feel depressed and loss of motivation is oftentimes an extended period of having worked oneself's body in such heightened stage of arousal that their body just kind of gives up and saying, say no more. You know, I'm, I'm done. I'm done working mm -hmm. for you. <laughs> and so if, if anxiety is an involuntary uptick in the body's baseline of energy and depression seems to be um, sort of the opposite, an in involuntary loss of energy and willpower. I immediately want to draw a line from one to the other. And in a way, your narrative suggests that. Um, do you often see that the two complaints are intertwined, that people who are suffering from anxiety uh, also have a mixture of depression in their experience? Or is it more common that a person experiences one end or other of the wave or the curve, as you as you explained? Definitely. I do see the presentation of it being a comorbid thing, as in that depressive symptoms and anxiety symptoms overlap one another. And I also see that it's possible to have much more clear distinction and separation between anxiety stage versus a more depressive stage. I think that anxiety and depression, it's so common these days and not just for college age students and youths that I see them more interchangeably and kind of co-occurring at the same time. Would it be fair to assume that they have something of a narrative structure or that one follows the other? Not necessarily in a certain order, but just the way you were laying it out there, it felt like, okay, like, let's say I'm suffering from anxiety and that keeps climbing and climbing and climbing. It sort of makes sense that there'd be a crash of energy afterward. Um, it also makes sense that if there's a cutting off of the energy and willpower and the vitality of a person in depression, that at a certain point there might be a separation um, between the mind and the body such that anxiety might arise from depression. Um, am I kind of just going down a, a rabbit hole here or is there some level in which it makes sense that the two belong to each other? Yeah, I think they, it's like I said earlier about that they're distant relatives. They're, uh, they kind of are in the same clan or <laughs> at least maybe mm -hmm. in the same uh, nearby villages, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. And and in some way, helping people understand that it's not either or. Sometimes it's interchangeable. Sometimes it's co-occurring. But can we understand both of them a little bit more, befriend them, get the two villages or the two clans hmm. to start talking to one another a little bit more so that they understand 
hey, when this happens, maybe the other may be right around the corner. And mm -hmm. so in some way of like being able to be aware of what's happening so that we're picking up some things mm -hmm. that's kind of lurking in the background that may be building up. You know, the image that comes to mind thinking of them as living in different villages is of like a, a kind of morbid dinner party. <laughs> you know, that a lot of Americans are having where anxiety and depression are at the table with them, mm -hmm. you know. Um, you mentioned the word burnout as part of the arc of the anxious experience of, um, you know, accumulating more and more excessive energy to the point that it you don't feel in control of it. Um, and I've been reading the book Burnout Society by the Korean-German philosopher Byung-Chul Han, and you and I have been discussing that book at length, and you've been reading parts of it as well. And one of the main things we wanted to discuss today in this episode is the issue of burnout. And I'm wondering if we can pivot to the role that burnout plays uh, for you and in your work, uh, in the people that walk through your door, but maybe also for yourself personally. Um, what is burnout and what does it mean to you? I love this question. You can't see me, but when you were asking the question, I was smiling. Um, while you were asking, I was also asking myself, why am I smiling? <laughs> because it's such a topic that can induce this image of, of lethargy, right? And, and I think that I'm smiling because we're calling attention to something that oftentimes I think that society makes people feel ashamed of burnout uh, and that the people themselves feel ashamed for burnout. Um, so maybe that's why I'm, I'm smiling, because um, we're mm. talking about something that I think many people have experienced and that I have observed in my clients and patients, certainly. The word burnout, the visual that's coming to my mind is a candle that has burnt all the way to the end and it mm. no longer produces light. So it mm. no longer produces vitality, uh, no longer produces life. And so mm. even though I, it, burnout is not a disorder or syndrome or even manifestation of symptoms in the current DSM-5, um, I, I think that burnout shows up differently for different people. I think burnout can show up in the more kind of common symptoms of of heightened anxiety, heightened depression, um, which therefore comes with excessive worries, uh, nervousness, crying, lethargy, like everything that we kind of described, anxiety and depression earlier. I also think that it can show up in forms of irritability, anger, frustration, and the opposite of that, like withdraw, going numb, checking out. I think that it can also show up in the behavioral form. So for some people, it's in kind of investing or let me say engaging in behaviors that might not be the healthiest for some people. Um, engaging in uh, self-destructive behaviors. 
or just like I said, not engaging at all. That that withdrawal, I think, is certainly the case. And so I think that burnout really is individualized, and there's probably reasons why certain people tend towards those specific manifestation for themselves.、Mm-hmm. If I think about myself, the times when I have experienced burnout. And or teeter towards it, it shows up as fatigue. It shows up as irritability. It shows up as low patience for myself and others, which probably leads to some notion of compassion fatigue.、Mm-hmm. Um, it shows、mm-hmm. up as. More re- not readiness, but like like easy that it's 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 easier for me to cry,、um, mm. and、mm-hmm. as you know, I'm I'm a pretty、uh, big crier. Like me and <laughs> me and crying are are that we seem to be good friends.、Uh, <laughs> mm. We know each other's territories、mm-hmm. pretty well.、Um, That's someone who comes to dinner. Quite a bit. Yeah, for you. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. dinner, picnic,、mm-hmm. snacks. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and、uh-huh. and but but maybe there's more of that, or, or just、mm-hmm. l- little things set me off more.、Um, mm-hmm. And and I want to differentiate that. I think sometimes for burnout, especially for high functioning people,、uh, that it doesn't mean that you don't get the job done. Mm-hmm. I, I think、right. I think oftentimes, especially for high functioning folks, perhaps like myself, you do the job well, and perhaps even still at the level or exceed the level that one's baseline was.、Mm-hmm. But the tolerance,、uh, the 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 quality of the performance experienced by oneself, right? Not necessarily、mm-hmm. experienced by others around them,、mm-hmm. but experienced by oneself. Is not the same. It's perhaps not as enjoyable, and so, yeah. I want to stick stick with the image of、um, I want to stick with the image of the candle、mm-hmm. that you gave there.、Um, you know, many candles have a single wick. The common candle that we see、uh, at a place like Marshalls is a candle surrounded by glass. With scented wax, right? We burn the candle in our homes. It gives us a feeling of hearth, of warmth, of joy, or togetherness.、Uh, many religions around the world utilize a candle to signify the presence of the divine or the the spark of the sacred within the human.、Um, but when that candle burns down, the taper of the wick. Uh, burns all the way down and becomes frayed at the bottom. And in a candle that's really been burnt to its absolute maximum, the actual fuel, the wax, will disappear from around the wick because the the flame itself will eat up as long as there's wick available, every last resource that it can reach, until there's nothing left.、Mm-hmm. And then what's left on the inside walls of that glass candle that I'm imagining, or that that glass container for the candle, is a dark, thick, kind of chalky,、um, ashen residue 
that turns the blue or pink or purple glass that was the candle into something ugly. That image of the wick burnt all the way down, the wax pulled back away from the wick and the the ash smeared onto the side of the candle really gives me a deeply visceral connection to the feeling of of burnout because it's not just low energy right the the picture you painted when you listed symptoms there was a huge broad range of things and you focused on people's internal experience right so burnout is not something that can often be uh, recognized by others. It's an internal state. It's on the inside of the candle. And so it makes sense that it's not in the DSM, right? In a way, someone has to recognize it or have someone very, very, very close to them recognize it mm-hmm. uh, and come to a point that they can own it or be aware of it. I'm someone who over the last five years has often described myself as being on the edge of burnout. But when I'm in that feeling of approaching burnout, it does feel like there is like there is ash inside of my body and inside of my mind. Like I've just I've overspent the reserve of of energy and I'm just sticking with the images here because I think they, they give us a direct way to perceive this feeling. Uh, the cover of Byung Chul Han's book is that of a rope, a nice, thick, sturdy rope that has frayed and is literally only hanging on by a thread. Mm. Um, can you say anything more about what it's been like for you at times that you've felt burned out and maybe when that was in your life? Uh, maybe that's a question for you as the, as my partner who, who have observed or witnessed me. Um, Mm. and, and I mean, I, I think that throughout many times of, I think different people stages, sometimes it's the partners or the friends around the people who are going through really difficult, uh, difficult things or tackling uh, challenging things that um, they also deserve some shout outs too because they're Mm -hmm. also the people who I think support um, maybe are the other things that's like holding by that thin thread right so um, anyway I joke that that maybe you might know uh, (laughs) a little bit more of what it's like for me when I've experienced burnout probably because you've, Mm. you've experienced and you've heard me uh, talk about mm-hmm. it, cry about it. Um, sure. Yeah. yeah, I think for for both of us, it often takes the form of frustration, low patience, um, irritability, the emotional component, as you said, being sad. Um, but I think there's also a a mental, a cognitive component of feeling a little fuzzy, or you know, knowing exactly what you need to do to keep your routine up and keep your productivity up and um, maintain respectfulness among your colleagues and your reputation, but uh, an inward sense of being foggy or being a little on autopilot or something like that. Does that resonate mm-hmm, with you? Mm-hmm. And I would say even even more in the fogginess or on autopilot 
is because there's no time. There's no time to slow down. There's no time that's been allotted to pause, take a moment and reflect because what happens if there was a pause? Maybe there's a fear that things would come tumbling down. I think that in the fogginess, sometimes I've heard people describe it as you're just on survival mode. You're just on that autopilot of needing to do what the next thing is uh, in order to keep going. Uh, but I mm. think that what sometimes burnout is, unfortunately for some people, is that it's like a involuntary stop, involuntary and harsh reality check of mm -hmm. regardless of if you take the moment to pause and reflect and change um, or request change, because I recognize that sometimes as much as us as the creatures want to change, it, it may not be plausible in whatever the environment somebody is in. So when I say that, mm -hmm. it's like if, if, if a student is in a pretty rigorous, let's say, graduate school, sometimes it's not possible to, to change the system in which one is in or the, the reality that one is in. Um, but I was saying that it's it, that that burnout forces uh, and, and it's an involuntary kind of halt to mm. the path that one is on. Unless, like me, you've been in denial and you're going around saying, you know, well, I'm not burnt out just yet, so <laughs> I'll just continue on dancing around the edge of it, right? But I think, yeah, true burnout, as you're saying, it does, it's a reckoning of some kind, right? It brings you up against limits, against your finitude, against how much you can accomplish, which brings me to the subject of this book by Byung-Chul Han. Um, notably, it's called The Burnout Society. And so rather than focusing on the individual psychology of burnout, though he does talk about it, he's interested in turning the idea of, of burnout into a cultural critique because he believes that we live in a culture that is specifically producing this phenomenon of burnout in individuals. But he's not just interested in looking at what individuals experience or what individuals need to do, but also looking at what is the society, what is the culture or cultures that produce the experience of people being burnt out. One of the main ways that Byung-Chul Han explains the burnout society is by describing first what it isn't. So in his conceptualization of recent history, the early capitalist society that, for example, Karl Marx was writing about and critiquing was primarily a disciplinary society or a martial society that was interested in organizing people into hierarchies, um, creating a division of labor, and producing wealth basically for an upper class of people who own the means of production. And Byung-Chul Han sort of develops Marxist critique and other, other types of critique to say that very specific types of mental health issues arise for people who are being exploited by others in their life, whether that's family members. You know, in the 1800s, there was a lot of child labor. 
or whether that's actually the grown children or the adults themselves working 60 or 80 hours a week um, on the assembly line, you know, sweating under the eye of um, a manager or various superiors. And that that image of laboring away under the watchful eye of superiors really encapsulates what Byung Chul Han means by the disciplinary society. The disciplinary society also has uh, features of psychological repression because there's a there's a narrative about working hard to produce not even really for yourself, but for the good of the nation or for the good of the family unit. And so there's a lot of stuffing down the individual desires and wishes and experiences um, for a larger picture. And we can see that in early capitalism. We can also see that in some of the deficient modes of communism and socialism around the world too. Um, But he claims that somewhere along the line – The psychological disorders that arose from that, which are what Freud and Jung and Adler and uh, other important early psychologists, psychoanalysts were looking at, were mental disorders arising from this disciplinary society. People had repressed urges and resentments and desires and dreams that they hadn't been allowed to conceptualize or live within. And so the work of that early psychology was primarily to help people get the repressed content back into consciousness and start to free themselves up for um, an experience of desire or an experience of creative expression or whatever that was that was outside the very tight limits that have been drawn around them by the Um, disciplinary or martial society. But he claims that somewhere along the line, and I'm sure in some of his books, he details exactly when this transition happened, but somewhere along the line, we've, we've gone beyond the disciplinary society. And he claims that we now live in an achievement society that is also a burnout society. In the achievement society, every single person is, is and can be and should be an entrepreneur, an architect of their own selfhood. We can see features of this in things like the gig economy, even in how our education system is structured. There was a nonprofit that ran a program at the elementary school I went to uh, called Junior Achievement Society. (laughs) And Junior Achievement Society, their their whole platform was about teaching uh, young, very young people about financial wellness, about entrepreneur, entrepreneurial skills, including how to start a business, um, which is a great mission. Uh, but their message, I actually quote it here. Let me see. Junior Achievement Society USA's purpose is to inspire and prepare young people to succeed in a global economy. We believe in the boundless potential of young people. We are committed to the principles of market-based economics and entrepreneurship. Um, wow. <laughs> what, what did you say this was uh, in, in middle school? Uh, elementary oh, school. Oh, damn! I was in, f- I, I was in first younger. grade. <laughs> I was in first grade. Yeah. 
What? And it continued oh. into second and third and fourth and fifth, I think. But what happened to what happened to playing on the swing and chasing other kids around on the playground and oh yeah, and oh yeah, allowing well, and- boredom to just settle. <laughs> Or just allowing kids to be kids, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, you know, and, but that's something that Byung-Chul Han's particularly interested in. So the disciplinary society is about figuring out what your place is in the world and submitting to that. But this new society, the Achievement Society, thrives on this message that anything is possible. Anyone can do anything. Nothing is impossible. The Junior Achievement Society says the boundless potential of the youth. And so the transition from early capitalism, discipline, punish, get in line, figure out where you're at in the hierarchy and stay there, comes to this new myth of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? Uh, Work hard and the sky's the limit. You know, you too can be a Silicon Valley billionaire. He says that this transition is primarily a transition in the way in which we as people are exploited. So this disciplinary society of the mid-1800s, say to the, I'm going to roughly say to maybe the 1930s or the 1940s, um, is all about really being exploited by others. And that's what Karl Marx was writing about in the Communist Manifesto in Das Kapital. But somewhere along the line, it was found that it's actually much easier, uh, much more sustainable for the market, uh, and much more effective to just get people to exploit themselves. And so in that way, we go from having an external manager breathing down our neck, even though many of us still have that, to having an internal manager right? A special hyper form, a hyper modern form of the ego that sits, you know, on one shoulder or the other and whispers into our ear, you could do more. You should do more. (laughs) Uh You must do more. And if you don't do more, you're failing. Or they use a reward system or even sometimes a punishment system to entice people to work more. And so it becomes a little bit like that that you are the enforcer seemingly because you want to work for the things that they say you'll get if you work more. Exactly. And so thinking about, you know, just the hypothetical profile of someone you might be serving who's experiencing burnout in your therapeutic practice, you know, it could be someone, and help me out here, but it could be someone who's in graduate school. Um, I think it probably dis- depends, discipline or department to department. But regardless of the field of study that they're in, at some point they're going to hit their version of preparing for candidacy, preparing for qualifying exam, studying for this very important exam, studying for this test or something Mm -hmm. that's going to um, push them to their max. And in my experience of working with a lot of these students, it pushes people to think that whatever they're doing, it's never enough. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I really want to highlight that whatever you're doing, it's never enough. That seems to be the the place where the achievement society turns into the burnout society is, is a belief like that. And let's say in this hypothetical profile of a person who's a couple of years into graduate school, let's say this isn't a person of incredibly high privilege and socioeconomic status. So this person also has to work. So let's assume that, you know, a portion of their day is devoted to uh, to study and to the requirements of their degree program. And then they're also working X number of hours per week. Um, that's only tangentially related or very likely not related at all to their field of study. Mm-hmm. Now, let's say this person either has an active family or social life um, and is at least moderately concerned about their physical well-being. Um you know, it just starts to to feel as you start thinking that through, it starts to feel like there's almost not enough hours in the day. Right. It's uh, it's I mean, as you're painting that story and as oftentimes I hear the stories of my students and clients, you can't help on the outside to feel similarly helpless or similarly drained by their their experiences and sometimes there is often a parallel process that other people around you just from hearing the things that someone is going through that they feel your your pain as well and i think that speaks to how much burden the person goes through for a lot of people who are working multiple jobs while going through school, um, on top of family obligations, on top of impacts of, I don't know, for example, personal identities, especially marginalized identities, that there is no time to process. Mm -hmm. Like therapy for a lot of my students of color is such a, or can be such a foreign thing Mm. because in some way they either have not had time or they've been taught to not make time, um, taught to not have time under that burnout society's kind of his conceptualization of what's happening, that there is no time to acknowledge that it's too much. Because I think that this society praises people on doing more. I can't tell you how many students and how much I have myself even probably thought these same thoughts along the lines of, I need to get blank done. I need to do this in order to feel better <laughs> because I, I mm-hmm. they legitimately need to get the thing done in order to move on to the next step. Um But then what it translates to is years of that compounded together, then somehow then the people connects that their sense of self-worth is tied to productivity of whatever Mm -hmm. whatever field that they're in. In 1994, the rapper Nas on his excellent album Illmatic (laughs) rapped, I never sleep because sleep is the cousin of death, mm. which is a um, a rough citation of the ancient Greek 
writer Hesiod, who claims that sleep and death are part of the same family. And I'm bringing this up because there's a book that came out maybe six or seven years ago called 24-7, Late Capitalism and the Ends of Sleep by Jonathan Crary. I haven't read that, but I listened to a podcast about it. And the, the argument is that, you know, in the achievement society, if there was a way to make sleep productive, we would do it. If there was a way to hook yourself up to a battery and store energy while you sleep, we, companies would monetize that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's even now a profusion of apps that, you know, you leave your phone right next to you all night and they track how many times you roll over <laughs> to see if your sleep is deep enough or healthy enough. And just this idea that downtime is an evil, right? Or that any time that can't be leveraged for in, for maximizing efficiency and output of profit and productivity, you know, that maybe sleep is the last place in, a, in all of our modern, postmodern, late capitalist lives that is not yet colonized. Mm-hmm. And I think about how during this time of pan- global pandemic, I've heard of different people's um, employers, there's this assumption that that because people are working from home, there is more time, which on a company level equates to one therefore should be more productive because Mm -hmm. you take out commute time, you take out other things uh, that perhaps would have factored into previous working conditions of being in the office. And I think that says a lot about that the society does not see the value or importance of rest. Mm. That that rest is seen as slothful. Is that a word? Slothful? That is. And it's one <laughs> of the seven deadly sins. Uh-huh. You know, some of the other deadly sins seem to have dropped away from our culture. But uh, we definitely still see sloth as an evil in some way. Um, and as you're mentioning that, you know, I'm thinking about um, I have a friend from high school who's an Uber driver. And, you know, I haven't spoken to him about this, but I would imagine that if it's possible to log into an app and get into your car and make money at any time of the day, it starts to get kind of weird about taking time off, Mm. right? Like if you're sitting on the couch, uh, even though you've maybe worked a 16 or 18 hour day, I mean, some Uber drivers do insanely long shifts. Sure. um, Sitting there, you know, half awake, half asleep or whatever. And once again, you're not of high socioeconomic status. Time is money, right? That's another one of the narratives that the Achievement Society tells us. It, it immediately converts time into money. And so the person sitting on the couch could just log into their Uber driver app and be making money, right? So how it gets hard to start setting a, a boundary around when you work and when you don't. And since you mentioned this word should, um, I know that you have some thoughts about transitioning people from a perspective of I should do X, Y, and Z 
to uh, I can or I get to or uh, some of those narratives. And I'm wondering if you can say a word about that in light of the achievement and the burnout society. Coming across this book and how Byung uh, Cho Hwan talks about how the, the, the word should is parallel to in, in line with the disciplinary world and then can uh, in the achievement world, uh, I, I started to think about how in my, in my treatment, in my sessions, and even for myself sometimes, um, one of the kind of the basic principles in, in CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, is recognizing the distortions or the cognitive distortions in our thinking patterns. And one of the common cognitive distortion types or categories are should statements. And you you might have heard it of people saying, oh, don't say should because of the, for example, a, a should statement such as I should have gone to bed earlier last night. I should have finished writing the five more pages on my thesis. I should have gone exercising. I shouldn't have eaten that fourth, fifth slice of pizza. Whatever the should statements that people oftentimes tend to involuntarily think of causes inner kind of disciplinary and self wagging the index finger, shaking their head and kind of squinting and, and causing a, 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 a look of judgment, right? <laughs> and so um, the, the work oftentimes in, in the CBT realm is helping somebody understand that that level of judgment is not helpful, which I, I recognize the benefits to that. Um, of of shaving off that level of criticism, shaving off that level of self-punishment. And so oftentimes the work is how do we modify one's cognitive distortion to something that's much more accurate in what actually happened. And so, sure, I think some people have certainly challenged me and I challenge myself and I challenge the kind of the the limitations of CBT oftentimes in, well, is it just changing semantics when someone says, I would like to have finished that, you know, five pages in my thesis. I would like to have gone out to do some sort of physical activity. I would like to have gone to bed earlier. And, 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 you know, I, I think that while it's helpful to shave off and curtail the harshness, and yet when I came across this book with you, I couldn't help but to think how much of that type of mentality falls under the achievement society and then um, pushes oneself to become uh, that everything is possible, I can, and therefore I, that everything is within grasp and then causes oneself to put the whip on oneself, right? In, in your example of the person who could be out there Uber driving and making money, um, it's no longer whatever the company, so Uber putting the whip on 
on him, but it's himself putting the whip on him. So regardless of if it's I should go out to make more money or I would like to, um, it's still in that achievement society realm. Uh, but maybe maybe it, it takes off that level of criticism, that level of harshness. In disciplinary society, threats and the no come from without. In achievement society, you are blamed from within for not saying yes. And that's Say that my, again. Say that again. Yeah. And that's that's my configuration of it. So this is not a direct quote, but in the disciplinary society, threats and the no, N-O, come from without. In the achievement society, you are blamed from within for not saying yes. Yes to opportunity, yes to... Um, career advancement, um, yes to more labor and more work and more productivity and more side hustles and more micro habits, right? Yeah. And so you are found, you are judged to be guilty for not saying yes. Yeah, I, I, um, that love, that word guilt comes up over and over again in my work with my clients, um, and also in myself of, of, I don't know, let's say missing a yoga class. <laughs> um, I mean, when, when things were in person. Now with the pandemic, man, I, I sleep in like no other. It's really <laughs> allowed me, allowed me to, uh, I think that the guilt kind of kind of went away mostly. Maybe I don't know. Maybe you have a different thought to that. Um, mm. But so the the role of guilt, I, I I hear that a lot in my students, feeling guilty for not wanting to do something that could possibly advance them because they're just too tired. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I want to also compare that. It's interesting because sometimes in my work with students, it's also about helping people set boundaries mm. and setting boundaries of knowing what's important to them and declining or also requesting the things that they don't want to do uh, or that they would like more of or more support in. As Byung Cho Han talks about in the Achievement Society, that the, the the disciplinarian has become oneself. And it's also kind of parallel that in my work with my clients, there's also been a lot of focus on how do I help them set firmer boundaries to say no to other people. And so it's interesting. I see that kind of parallel of that it causes distress when people come to me about interpersonal conflicts or interpersonal uh, struggles where they may have to decline some things or may they may have to go and request for some things or how to how to get their their true needs met. Have you ever said yes to too many things? For myself? Yeah. Oh, certainly. In the probably 
the visual that's coming to my mind is if I'm aware enough and insightful enough that the, the things that I'm saying yes to or too much to are not things that I can actually take on or things that would probably burden me. There's kind of this uh, um, kind of notion of like me smacking myself in the head internally. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So that's what that's like. <laughs> mm-hmm. And to do that requires the ability mm-hmm. to say no. I'm too busy, right? Or I, I have too much on my plate already. And I think what Byung Chul Han is concerned about is that we're losing the ability to do that. Mm. That, you know, the, the cultural narrative has moved into this accelerated form. You know, I, I've moved over the last few years to seeing the particular brand of capitalism we have in America as itself a, a kind of religion, a religion that's founded on the belief in an endless increase in personal and collective productivity. So, for example, I mean, when the coronavirus crashed the markets, it was because we could no longer count on tomorrow being more productive than today. Mm-hmm. It suddenly looked to everyone like, oh, this narrative that 2020 will always be more productive and more bountiful and more abundant than 2019 and that 2021 will be more than the last, right? That was disrupted in those days, right? And that's why, in part, you know, yes, the stock market crashed because stay-at-home orders were being issued and businesses were closing and people were losing their jobs. But I've really come to see the market as also a, a testament of faith. And everybody lost a little bit of faith in the grand narrative that we will always be able to produce more. We will always be more effective. We will always be more efficient. We will always be more productive each day in an increasing mm-hmm. arc, which which reminds me of the arc you started off talking about. That Just that belief makes me anxious mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In, in verbalizing it. Right. Even though we all sort of implicitly believe it when we participate in the market economy of the United States and the world, um, verbalizing it out loud provokes anxiety in me, not just because of the burnout that it will take, the generations on top of generations on top of generations sacrificed at the altar of productivity, but also that. In voicing it out loud, I'm I'm not sure I believe the narrative. Yeah, I I think that for different companies and different fields, there's probably um, this thing about setting your goals at the beginning of every year or at the beginning of every uh, quarter or at the beginning of however they mark their start and end date, and. One thing that I've always that I've kind of always thought about prior, even prior to this time, is why is there a need for new goals to be constantly set? Why is there a need for a higher number of blank? Right? Why is there a need for more of this? And I can understand that in that 
late capitalistic approach that that's the way for I don't know I guess revenue and for growth but I've I've been somebody who in my work of kind of challenged that of can it be the same goal but have a different qualitative state to it like is there mm. not are there no values in setting the same goal and then seeing how mm-hmm in a different time, in a different season with different people that that the same goal produces a different qualitative outcome. Mm. Um, can it, does it not always have to be measured quantitatively? You know, one of the points that Byung-Chul Han makes in his critique of the burnout society is that this culture of an excess of positivity, of the power of positive thinking and this if you're following me here on this religious belief in endless growth, um, the solutions that we are given to our burnout are just more of the same, right? Take up more activities. Yeah, because the way you're using the word positivity is not necessarily positive as in uh, happiness, um, but more of like Mm -hmm, adding mm -hmm. to excess of surplus of is that kind of how you're using positivity i guess that blameful voice of i should have x right that cognitive distortion that interdisciplinarian is that one that tells us you know i'm burnt out because i didn't spend a hundred dollars on supplements on the right supplements or i didn't run six miles every morning and do two hours of yoga and meditation every night. Or frequently, the one thing the burnout society doesn't want us to do is look at it and realize that there are structural, systematic problems in the culture, in the world of business, in the education sphere even. Um, It always wants us to turn the lens back on ourselves. Yes, and and then cause us to just do more of what it wants yeah, us to do. Yeah, I, I call it like the um, you can self care yourself to burnout. <laughs> um, like yeah. uh, I mean, I, I I joke with that. I I mean, I I joke because I talk about the importance of self care, and I do believe in self care. And as as you who's who's really, really close to me know that I believe in self-care and I set aside time and um, I have different mm-hmm. versions and forms of how I take care of myself. And mm-hmm. I also think that um, that's just saying, oh, I need to do uh, X, Y, and Z in order to perform at my blank, Right. Well, okay, then X, Y, and Z is not enough. Let me add A, B, and C in order to do yeah. blank. Um, and mm-hmm. that I think there's this myth that if one is burned out, uh, then they're not doing enough of the X, Y, Z, A, B, and C. Or even that, you know, you haven't said no enough. You must be saying yes too much, right? Like it's always, it always comes back to blaming the person. And I think, you know, as we're going to talk about in just a moment, there are some things that the individual can do to avoid burning the candle at both ends, as it were. Um, but I think what Byung-Chul Han wants to say is, hey, just a moment, 
right? It's a it, to me, it's a compassionate word, and even in a way, as dark as this subject can be, there's a hopeful word in what he's saying to people: is hey, it's not just you. Yeah, everybody partakes in that. Whether it's you are the um, company kind of CEO or administrative leadership staff that's making up the rules or you're just a worker, I think we all kind of in, participate in that cycle. And that that cycle is even bigger than all of us, right? That the the market, I mean, if you listen to economists talk about the market, they talk about it as if it is an entity that has a will of its own, right? The system that we live in is is also to be taken into account in cases of individual burnout. Um, I, it makes me think of a pretty extreme and radical band um, that you'll immediately know they're radical <laughs> by their name because they called themselves the Socialist Patient Collective. <laughs> and they were in the late 70s making noisy protest music. But um, they say mental illness itself can be a symptom of capitalism. It's an interesting thing where psychology bumps up against philosophy, anthropology, and sociology, right? You've got the individual sitting in front of you with burnout, but we also know that that person is enmeshed in this wider social mm -hmm. fabric that has created the conditions for this burnout mm -hmm. in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I. Um, there are some things that are so culturally ingrained in me that uh, the younger version of myself would have seen it as efficiency. And, and I think that to this day, I think I still take a lot of pride over being able to be efficient. Um, as you know, who sometimes take the, the brunt <laughs> of me... <laughs> Uh, barking at you for not being <laughs> efficient enough um, mm. for myself struggle with how do I take pride in certain kind of cultural elements of doing more mm. squeezing more things into smaller chunks of time and recognize that it doesn't have to be that way Mm -hmm. Maybe it's about the the timing of or the intentionality of when one chooses to be efficient and to to add more things onto their plate and and when not to. I think that that learning to say no, that boundaries thing, um, that's so important and. If Byung-Chul Han is right, and one of the main issues is that we're losing the ability to say no, um, you know, I, I think a question to, to ask you and a question to live into is how do we develop the system of values and symbols and markers and feelings that indicate to us when it's time to say mm. no? You know, some people may have a really, really loud intuition about that, and that's awesome. And I, I do believe that that's something you can train and get better at listening to. But not all of us have that voice, that kind of conscience, that Jiminy Cricket on the shoulder that says, hey, this is too much, or 
hey, you're already tired, you know. Some of us need to learn to have that voice again. And so we have to value things besides efficiency and output, don't we? We have to learn to know when enough is enough. Yeah, and and you're asking about how do we find that inner voice and I think like finding anything that sometimes goes missing in our lives um, when you're looking for it head on I don't know if you've had this experience I oftentimes can't find it (laughs) in that moment but Mm. perhaps Mm -hmm. it just kind of shows up when I give it some time and so maybe Mm. allowing time allowing spaciousness to exist as much as possible. I recognize that that's not always possible and it's a luxury um, or can be a luxury, but maybe the way Mm. to tune in, it's kind of like being able to quiet everything else and then turn up the dial of that voice that perhaps is at a volume one and you want it and in order to for it to be audible it has to be at like six or seven but in order to do that things has to be quieter things has to be slower Mm -hmm. there has to be space Mm to to recognize the feeling state of the chatter And then what is it like Mm. in the feeling state as one tries to quiet the chatter? Because I I think that there is a lot of internal resistance. And so almost Mm. giving space to sitting with resistance and then giving Mm. space to resistance before the volume of the inner voice gets turned up. Right. So, I mean, that takes a lot of time. Um, so, so yeah, it does take time, but it seems to me that that's something that's in the heart of your approach to therapy. And that's something that's true both on the side of the therapist and on the side of the patient or the client. And, you know, I know that you're someone who sits in both chairs and it seems to me that the space of therapy and the time of therapy, um, you know, could be a place to create that that know that alters time and space so that you can sit with feelings so that you're not always routing back into achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any reflections on on therapy as a form of slowing sure, down? Sure, I, I certainly do. I freaking love therapy. <laughs> um, mm. As I mean, there's so many things I could say, but I as as somebody who truly believes in the art, in the magic, in the everythingness of therapy, as somebody who um, has been a client for a long time. Um, continuously just because I believe in continuing to be a patient while being a clinician because it keeps me mm. knowing myself because I continue to mm. change um, and it keeps me humbled um, to to know what it's like sitting in the other chair. Yeah, I've, I've joked with 
my therapist, my psychologist, that um, I joked with him that I I come in talking about the same damn thing, and yet you haven't fired me. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I and I and and certain things kind of, you know, beautifully kind of blossomed from him giving me the time to sit with what I needed to sit with for for things mm-hmm. to that I think only through time could I have gotten to the insights or the push through the the inner resistances um and gotten to whatever wherever I needed to get to so here's what I'll say to listeners right off of that is Find the things that slow down time for you, right? It it might be therapy. It might be meditation. It might be some kind of exercise or artistic creation. Um, but find the things that slow down time because Alice has just highlighted here that it is that that timeliness, that sense of being rich in time, right? Rather than using time to get rich, letting time itself be rich, that brings insights and brings the power of reflection. Um, And in a way, I feel like you already answered what my next question was going to be, which was, you know, how do we differentiate between self-care practices that are just more of the same, actually, at their heart, that are just more achievements to accumulate and more things to get proficient and efficient at, and self-care practices that really change time and space and how we experience the world and truly nourish and restore us at that soul level. Um... If you're willing to dive into this just a little more, I think that, you know, for example, I know that we met through the practice of yoga, and it's something that's been part of both of our lives for a long time, and it's been a form of self-care that has been very effective for both of us. Um, It also, you know, the yoga scene can be about acting a certain way and dressing a certain way and being perceived a certain way. Um, and even about achieving postures or, uh, certain states of mind, um, you know, kind of a performative aspect. And to me, what you just laid out about the relationship with your psychologist and your personal experience of therapy of, you know, I, I get the gift of time in which I can come to realizations that seems to me to be of a totally different category of experiences than whatever it is if, like, going to therapy was just somehow turned into checking a box or achieving something, right? It's like, that's not the goal of therapy. Well, I think your question of how do we discern the two types of self-care practices, one that's much more of like a task oriented, one that falls in line with the achievement society, and then one that perhaps meets deeper nourishing one's soul. I I wonder if maybe there's not necessarily, it doesn't need to be 
dualistic. Um, it, it can be both. It can be in doing the primary, the former, and somehow finding yourself in the latter. Um, mm. Like mm -hmm. I, I, I think about that. So, uh, me and water uh, have have a past. I mean, that sounds super vague, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess we're all made up of water. <laughs> but um, but I guess what I'm saying is the theme of water comes up a lot in in my in my own therapeutic work. And um, water probably without giving much thought when I was a child was just a thing that I did. Um, but then mm. it became this meditative thing through swimming it somehow then transforms itself right into to meeting something a lot more richer and and meets up my soul um and so that's for mm. example something in which it started out as just a task just as a thing and um as a self-care activity because it was a it, 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 it's hot outside. I want to go swimming. Um, and I learned swimming, right? So there, it, it was just a task. And then, and, but I think that in any tasks that are already self-care practices for people, I think that if you dig deeper, perhaps there's greater meaning to it of how it nourishes mm. one's soul. Um, you and I just watched Frozen 2 this, you know, past weekend. Um, <laughs> uh, Mm -hmm. By that, I mean, I begged you <laughs> and <laughs> forced you. It was pretty good. Some of those songs were corny, but it was one song. Good. Maybe it was a little uh, bit corny. Okay, um, yeah. But what did what did what did uh, Elsa say? That water has memory. Has memory. Um, and so I mean, <laughs> even from a Disney movie, damn it, it has <laughs> it carries uh -huh. meaning, and 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 so I think that. Like anything, it, yeah. one self-care practice can go deeper if you allow it to be. Um, if there's space and time to to dig a little bit deeper of what yeah. it means. There's, there's an allowing there. And I love how you turned my dualistic question into a non-dual frame. Um, and it reminds me of what the Christians call grace, mm -hmm. which is this magic component of you know, there's a lot of work we can put in. There's a lot that we can achieve. We can commit to self-care. We can commit to say no, right? These are positive achievements or uh, achievements that bring us outside of the um, hustle and bustle of the burnout society. But there's also just an element that something has to grab you, right? That um, you can't make that magic happen exactly, like you can show up, you can commit, you can get interested in things, but there's a an element of the thing reaching back into you that you can't cause. Um, one of my favorite images for that is when uh, Jesus of Nazareth was baptized by John the Baptist. You know, he goes down into the water and, you know, baptism was a thing in, in those day and age that uh, was a ritual of being taken down into water and then brought back up out of water. And uh, different spiritual teachers at the time saw that ritual as an important ritual of renewal. And um, the story is that when Jesus came up from his own personal baptism, a 
white bird flew down out of the sky, out of the sunlight, and landed on him. And later on, he said, you know, someone can be baptized in water, and that's a choice that they make, right? They go to the river, they go see the teacher, the teacher dunks them under the water. But there's also that grace element of the bird mm-hmm. that comes down, the spirit, or the uh, Jesus in, in one passage calls it the internal fire, right? That is the, the reaction that is the, the grace that comes over you because of your practice, because of your decision, because of what you've said no and what you've said yes to. Um, and I just, I think that your non-dual change of, hey, practices can be both busy work and achievement and also um, spiritually gratifying and psychologically deep um, just reminds me that some of what we have to do is open up and mm. let be. I hope that all humans, um, and it's kind of like that when we sometimes say our prayers to send out to the world, but I I truly believe that um, there is a sense of freedom, there's a sense of lightness that can come from being able to open oneself up and going towards and further further into the discomfort in order to see what's on the other side um Mm. which oftentimes requires a great deal of continuing practice of vulnerability of recognizing Mm. that that pain (laughs) going through the pain is oftentimes um uh the way and i also Mm. recognize that for some people, for many people, opening up um, in whatever it is that they're dealing with in whatever circumstances, situation is not safe or they don't have the community support, they don't have the people around them, that there's not a model for opening up. Um, that's also hard. So I, I, I want to recognize mm-hmm. that it's a privilege to get to for myself of being able Mm. to have been on that path, continue to work on that path and continue to serve my students and clients on that path and helping others Mm -hmm. serving as models for other people. Um, And then also recognizing that that might not be possible right now for some folks. And maybe when it feels like that, when there's no opening and when vulnerability is not um, on the table, um, maybe it is the commitment to just show up for yourself in some way. Yeah. And also to take rest. I always try to include in this podcast a recommendation or a practice, an exercise, or just, just a special listening experience even uh, to listeners so that they can connect more directly physically and emotionally to the ideas that have been discussed in the episode. And I know that you've selected a reading that you want to share with listeners today. Sure. Um, when you kind of told me, and I, and I know that you, your question about what practice can listeners do, and I thought about, well, isn't what we are trying to 
uh, encourage people is to not do more. <laughs> and so right. perhaps right. the the practice is to, for it to not have a practice. And so um, I like to read an excerpt from this book that I love. It's called Consolations by David White. If I could kind of just read out loud from it, uh, it's pretty short. It's kind of like an es- a short po- poetic essay, I guess. The chapter is called Rest. Rest is the conversation between what we love to do and how we love to be. Rest is the essence of giving and receiving, an act of remembering imaginatively and intellectually, but also psychologically and physically. To rest is to give up on the already exhausted will as the prime motivator of endeavor. With its endless outward need to reward itself through established goals. To rest is to give up on worrying and fretting and the sense that there is something wrong with the world unless we are there to put it right. To rest is to fall back literally or figuratively from outer targets and shift the goal not to an inner static bullseye, an imagined state of perfect stillness, but to an inner state of natural exchange. The template of natural exchange is the breath, the autonomic giving and receiving that forms the basis and the measure of life itself. We are rested when we are a living exchange between what lies inside and what lies outside. When we are an intriguing conversation between the potential that lies in our imagination and the possibilities for making that internal image real in the world. We are rested when we let things alone and let ourselves alone to do what we do best. Breathe as the body intended us to breathe. To walk as we were meant to walk. To live with the rhythm of a house and a home, giving and taking through cooking and cleaning. When we give and take in an easy foundational way, we are closest to the authentic self and closest to that self we are most rested. To rest is not self-indulgent. To rest is to prepare to give the best best of ourselves and to perhaps, most importantly, arrive at a place where we are able to understand what we have already been given. In the first state of rest is the sense of stopping, of giving up on what we have been doing or how we have been being, In the second is the sense of slowly coming home, the physical journey into the body's uncoerced and unbullied self, as if trying to remember the way or even the destination itself. In the third state is a sense of healing and self-forgiveness and of arrival. In the fourth state, deep in the primal exchange of the breath, is the give and the take, the blessing and the being blessed, and the ability to delight in both. 
The fifth sage is a sense of absolute readiness and presence, a delight in and an anticipation of the world and all its forms, a sense of being the meeting itself between inner and outer, and that receiving and responding occur in one spontaneous movement. A deep experience of rest is the template of perfection in the human imagination, a perspective from which we are able to perceive the outer specific forms of our work and our relationships, whilst being nourished by the shared foundational gift of the breath itself. From this perspective, we can be rested while putting together an elaborate meal for an arriving crowd, whilst climbing the highest mountain or sitting at home surrounded by the chaos of a loving family. Rested, we are ready for the world but not held hostage by it. Rested, we care again for the right things and the right people in the right way. In rest, we reestablish the goals that make us more generous more courageous, more of an invitation, someone we want to remember, and someone others would want to remember too. Thank yeah. you. You know, when they had the image of um, preparing a meal I thought, uh, you know, the meal could uh, be the same meal that anxiety and depression come to. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to... I, I want to be in a space where we can welcome the negativity, where if you're burnt out or I'm burnt out, we can tell each other and it doesn't become a blameful thing. And we can just hold that in the relationship, even if the way out of it isn't immediately apparent. And that's that's something that I wish uh, for our listeners also. Mm-hmm. 